from Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin, Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. In the years following the so-called Secret War, when the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency trained the ethnic group of the Hmong to fight against the northern Vietnamese, mysterious reports emerged of a yellow substance falling out of aircrafts and causing harm, sometimes fatally, to the Hmong. Reports from Hmong migrants leaving Laos detailed the destruction of this substance, which was later labeled as Yellow Rain, and a harsh debate regarding the possibility that it was a chemical weapon ensued. That's the topic of Mai Durbing's second poetry collection, which was published last year. It's titled Yellow Rain, and it was just named a finalist for this year's Pulitzer Prize in Poetry. Miter will talk about Yellow Rain, and we'll hear some of her poems. It's Wednesday, June 1st, and this is News Nerds. Poet Miter Vang's latest collection, Yellow Rain, is an exploration into the reports from Hmong migrants of a harmful yellow substance falling out of planes. These events were followed by an investigation uh, to the origins of what was then emerging as uh, a chemical weapon, which was being used against the Hmong people. Yellow Rain was a finalist for the 2022 Pulitzer Prize in Poetry, along with the 2022 Penn Volcker Award for Poetry Collection, the 2021 Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Poetry, and the 2021 California Book Award for Poetry. Miter's past collection, Afterland, focuses on the struggles of Hmong refugees seeking asylum following their exodus from Laos. Uh, so thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So um, I'm wondering, how did you find out that your book had become a finalist uh, for the Pulitzer? Well, you know, it's funny because I, I found out just after I had finished teaching a class, and it happened to be a poetry class too, of course, I teach poetry, but it was just after I had finished up the class, I was wrapping things up and I was just sort of doing some follow-up work. And then my partner shared the news with me and I was just stunned. I was completely blown away and couldn't believe it. Uh, so both of your books have been in poetry, in the form of poetry. You've, you also teach poetry, as you just uh, just said. Why do you choose to express yourself in that form instead of just a, a written book? Well, I have written poetry for a long time now, ever since I was probably about maybe 10 or 11. I would just dabble. I would write poems to my friends. And so I always, I started out with poetry and then it sort of stuck with me throughout high school and then even into my undergraduate years. And I've also written essays too. Um, and I enjoy writing essays too, as well. You know, I think it, it's both of these forms offer, uh, you know, their, their own unique ways of expressing whatever it is I'm, I'm trying to write about. But with poetry, there's just something about being able to, to sort of take language and recreate it for the purposes of that poem, whatever that poem might be. Um, and in ways in which I can't really do when I'm writing prose, because sometimes in prose, the words mean what they mean. Whereas in poetry, the words can sometimes transform into other things. And so I think there's some, there, there's a lot of sort of uh, uh, potential with poetry to explore uh, any subject matter and to try to get closer to the truth of it. I, I would like to hear more about the uh, the history of the Hmong people and 
before that they got recognition for these events what they what they were like as a culture so Hmong people are traditionally, I mean, historically, the, many of them have settled in the Southeast Asian region, particularly the Northern Highlands of Laos is primarily where a lot of, a lot of Hmong people settled, um, I want to say probably about a century ago. And then prior to that, they lived in south, the southwestern parts of China, and many of them still do actually live in that region um, and then over time because of need to migrate or um, other conflicts too um, they found their way down into laos and and that's where well that's where my family especially is from my my grandparents on both sides as well so so what happened in in the 1950s and 1960s when the u.s was conducting its war in in vietnam in Laos, they were also in Laos. They were also having what was called the secret war. They were recruiting a lot of Hmong men and boys, many of which included my my uncles. They were recruiting these men and these boys to fight in a war alongside what was happening in Vietnam. And this was more of a secret war. It was a covert war, and it was a, being led by the CIA and the idea behind this was that they wanted to have these men fight on behalf of the United States against communism and against the threat of communism. And so Hmong men died at alarming numbers in comparison to their uh, American counterparts. And then when the United States ended the war in 1975, you know, what eventually happened was that everyone pretty much got left behind. And so a lot, everyone pretty much had to flee for their lives, had to, had to uh, evacuate, had to sort of, you know, take their own journeys through the jungles to try to get to the refugee camps in Thailand, um, including my parents as well. And so when I think back to this war, I think of it more of as a, as a proxy war, as a war in which the United States was able to get Hmong men to do their work of war for them, you know, um, and 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 that's that's just the sinister nature of war, right? Uh, in some of these wars, these proxy wars, and so that led to the Yellow Rain issue ultimately, right? Because when a lot of the Hmong were running through the jungles, that's when many of them began to report this mysterious toxic substance that seemed to be making a lot of people sick and also proved to be fatal in many um, instances too. Well, thank you for that history. And I would love if you could read um, at least uh, a portion of When the Poison Fell Before 1979. I know it's one of your longer poems. Yeah, sure. I'll read this. Let me read the the first section and the last section. Okay, great. Yeah. And I would love for you to just to explain that before you read that, what you were uh, seeking to to say in that poem. Well, yeah. So with this poem, this is this is sort of a compilation of different experiences and different sort of retellings of of Yellow Rain and that I came across and and this is I I want to say this is based on one particular report where it was it was like a, a again just a, a, an assemblage of information about people who had been sharing about the attacks 
and the results of what had happened. And so I took those experiences and I, I drew them out a little bit further by, uh, by adding and integrating poetry into that language. So that's what you see here. This is like a four, four part poem because of those different, um, the different sort of uh, testimonies and retellings of it. When the poison fell before 1979. One, Hmong refugee age 26 heard about the attacks March 1976, Ben Nong Kui, 28 dead, red, green, and yellow smoke. September 1979, Ben Nam Kui, 27 dead. You have followed how deep the ear telling proceeds, undensing these patterns to widen a vacancy of clues. To hear as you've heard into the pulp's undergrowth, how much archiving is too much centered and fatigue? How digested the headlights flare over the diseased hymn? Four, Hmong refugee, age 56, experienced attack, early 1978, Pukia. Two L-19 bombs were dropped on his village, red and black smoke, six relatives died. He was told that he fell unconscious for seven days within 30 minutes after attack. He felt bad after regaining consciousness. Fingernails and toenails were black from hemorrhage, tongue stiff and could not talk for seven days, lost vision for 30 days. How can a ceiling of translucence lift from a ground so routinely sombered? It has no Fahrenheit in which to hibernate. The lemongrass might blade at first touch, but take a labor of calm to salve your hands, feet giving back its truest blush. Take that you lived and were offered the backbone to tell lessons on arriving at the perimeter of a miracle. They are yours to keep as this falling out of and back into have been yours to nestle debris of the last epiphany ever yours to fulfill. So you mentioned uh, your family's part in this part of history, and I would like uh, for you to kind of tell the journey that they went to and how your family ended up in the United States. Yeah, so my parents, you know, they're both refugees from Laos, and they, amongst the evacuation and the fleeing of an exodus of people, they were amongst them. Um, and so both of my parents, they fled with their families, I want to say probably around the late, sometime in the late 70s, because then what happened is that they, they found their way and they made it to a refugee camp in Thailand. And then shortly after they arrived to the refugee camp, they they lived there for a few years, but then shortly after, I mean, I'm, well, I, I don't know if they, I don't want to say, because it's the numbers are still so unclear to me, and, but they, they were there for, um, for, for a while. I, I, my mom has, you know, has shared that with me that they've been, that they were there for a while before they were resettled. So I think that's what really happened. And then, and then finally, they were resettled in the United States, and they ended up in the Twin Cities, 
first um, before they finally relocated to Fresno, California, which is where I was born and in the very early 80s too. So it's weird because all of this was happening right around the same time, you know, them getting into the refugee camp, them leaving the refugee camp, them arriving into the Twin Cities and then relocating to Fresno where I was then born in, in the early 80s. And and um, for them, it's it's been quite the journey. I think growing up in the 1980s, uh, for me as a child in a multi-generational refugee family was was definitely, you know, had hit, had had its very had its highs, but also had its lows too, because I, I grew up with parents who did not speak English. And so that meant that I, as a child, I was interpreting for them wherever we went. And then, you know, we lived, um, I, we lived with, uh, my, my grandparents lived with us too. So it was really a wonderful experience to grow up in a multi-generational household, but also it was just difficult too, at the same time to have so much going on and so much confusion about who we are in this world and how we got here. And then for me personally, it wasn't until much, much later in my life, like undergraduate, when I went to college, finally, that I even learned about this war and what my parents had been through and how they became refugees. It wasn't until much later that the pieces of that story all came together in my own head. And even now I'm still learning things as I, as I continue on in my own work and in my own writing and my own life. You did a lot of research into this book, and I know that involved reading uh, documents like the poem that you just read. There was excerpts from um, documents that have been either declassified uh, in the years since the incident. What was the research, and how did you go about that? So I researched a lot of materials that were from that particular era, which included things like declassified documents, government reports, articles, um, essays, um, books even, but mostly mostly declassified documents. And, and those declassified documents consisted of things like cables that were sent between the U.S. Embassy in Bangkok to the State Department in the United States and and just all that communication that goes back and forth uh, between these government entities. And and I I had no idea what I was getting myself into when I discovered all of these documents. I also read a dissertation by uh, Dr. Rebecca Katz, who is a professor at uh, Georgetown university and who wrote her dissertation on yellow rain and that was a really uh profound moment for me finding and discovering this dissertation that basically spoke to the idea of yellow rain having been inflicted as a toxin on Hmong refugees and so reading her dissertation gave me even more resources to to, to pull from and to draw from and then and then I also came across another sort of massive pool of declassified documents at the National Security Archive in Washington, D.C. as well. So it was a lot of different parts coming together. And then I did a lot of online research, too. I dug through various databases online to see what I could find about Yellow Rain. And um, I tried to, you know, take all of this and condense it in, in whatever way that I could for my reader 
which is what that I offer in, in the book. And a lot of the poems are based on those documents. Um, so there's another theory about yellow rain. We've been talking about uh, the, the theory that it was a biological weapon, but people, including uh, professors from Harvard, many people who have high-level jobs or are well-known in their profession have the theory mm-hmm. that it was just simply bee poop, like just bees uh, defecating on, uh, in the, in, on the people. Can you talk about that theory? Yeah, that that's a huge part of the Yellow Rain story, and 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 you know my book attempts to, in many ways, challenge that theory. To and it attempts to challenge the dismissing of the of the Hmong narratives and the Hmong accounts of Yellow Rain, because the the theory about the 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 honeybee feces is definitely one that, in many ways, invalidates and also then erases the the trauma that has been inflicted on the refugees who spoke about yellow rain as being this very dangerous and fatal thing. So the theory goes that that this substance, this mysterious toxin, isn't in fact a toxin, but it's really just the, the feces of honeybees that are defecating on refugees as they're running through the jungles. That's the theory. And um, this theory is one that is currently the default theory on yellow rain so i think it's the one that stands at the moment as what most people have accepted as to be the answer to yellow rain for me i i i just i find it extremely you know just heartbreaking to hear this idea you know or just like just heartbreaking but also full of rage to to know that this was the assumption that was created because again it 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 really for me it was really just a a political game between the the governments the you know the different sides of government who wanted to push forward their own various political agendas um you know on, on the one hand you have these people who are pushing forward this b theory right um and in my mind you know it's like they wanted to push forward this B theory um, probably because they didn't want further conflict in the world. And so it was just easier to say that these refugees had lied about yellow rain. It's just B feces. So, you know, for me, I mean, that's kind of where what my research has 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 shown me and what my my digging through all these documents, I've realized. You know that 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 the 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 offering of this B feces theory is rooted in this political agenda that these people had, and then on the other hand, what's even more sinister is that then you had people in government who wanted to believe it was a toxin. They were pushing forward this other theory, saying that yes, this is a biological weapon, because then that would serve their political agenda too, to be able to use that as a way to lobby Congress for more, for more weapons, for more guns, for more bombs. And so here you, here you have these two sides hashing it out, and in the middle are the Hmong refugees. 
Uh, I would love it if you would read another poem for us, and then we'll discuss uh, the physical evidence against the the bee theory. Um, and this poem is called "The Fact of the Matter Is the Consequence of Ugly Deaths." Okay. And it just it really shows how uh, that theory has it's not it's not from the late seventies and early eighties when this uh, was happening. It's not been uh, debunked. It's it's been a, a, a uh, a theory that's been present in society and how society thinks about this event. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'll read this poem and this one. Um, also just to add some more context, there's, there's an epigraph that I'll also read to that is drawn from a, a, an episode that was aired by radio lab um, in 2012. And they, they had actually did this episode on Yellow Rain then, and they interviewed the writer Kao Kalia Yang about Yellow Rain, uh, interviewed her and her uncle. And uh, it just, it was a, it was, it, it did not end well in the sense that the interview basically, you know, they, they had, they were pushing forward the B theory in that interview. Meanwhile, Kalia and her uncle are just there sort of kind of devastated with what what's happening to them in the middle of that interview and then Kalia ends the interview and then after this interview there's just a firestorm of response from the community about why Radiolab did this the fact of the matter is the consequence of ugly deaths it's not fair to not consider other stories other frames of the story Ronald Reagan used this story to order the manufacture of chemical weapons first time in 20 years. If the United States were to manufacture chemical weapons again, use them because the Russians supposedly had, people would have died ugly deaths in the consequence. And this is Robert Coleridge, Radiolab WNYC, September 23rd, 2012. Out here, it's parlors of jungle. Sometimes flashbacks of disfigured interrogations Handprints fleeing to leave no crease behind. This is our monsoon to shelter, our version of mortality snaking toward delusional truth. We know how to let go, then perish with even more lineage of beauty. For thickening of truces between false men, aging purveyors of genetically modified diplomatics, lizard citizens invented, herbicidal biomediation, whistling riddles into an arsenal of hammers, spit of your unhinging. You refuse our dead as though we were never alive. Just say what you mean to say. That is, Mong, keep your dying to yourself. So let's talk about the, the, the physical evidence against the B theory. Um, there's been an investigation, you know, that the, the government did into uh, Yellow Rain and then multiple analysis uh, since then. So let's talk about that evidence. What, what, what makes uh, your viewpoint be that Yellow Rain was a, uh, a weapon? Yeah, so what happened was when, when, the, when Hmong refugees were arriving into the refugee camps reporting this 
this mysterious substance that would, you know, again, fall from airplanes and would land on their clothing, their skin, their, um, the, you know, it would land on the trees too. And it would make people sick, but it, again, it, it was also fatal. They reported this to the refugee camp workers and doctors who at the time had no idea what to make of this substance. So as a result of that, you know, the, the U.S. government got involved and they were so eager to get to the bottom of what yellow rain was. They wanted to know, again, like I was saying a while ago, they wanted to know because they wanted to, they wanted to be able to see if they could leverage this to lobby Congress to produce more weapons because maybe they thought they were being threatened by the Soviet Union, right? Because, and in fact, that's who they pointed their finger at were, were the Soviets. And, and it was like, you know, if this is happening to these refugees in the jungle, then we have to build up our arsenal because now we're being threatened by the Soviets, who we believe is the one giving yellow rain to the communists to use against the Hmong refugees. And so they, that's why they conducted this eight-year investigation into Yellow Rain. And what happened was they took all of these blood samples, they took urine samples, they took other fluids too from, from refugees. They did autopsies, they, they, they sent these samples all over the world. They also took leaf samples and vegetation, you know, things in the environment, even clothing from refugees to test to see what this was. In, I think it was in 1981, there was a professor, Dr. Dr. Maro, Chester Marocha at the University of Minnesota, who tested a leaf sample that came out positive for, for having this toxin called trichothecine mycotoxin on it. And so that from that one leaf sample that was a, was an, you know, a, a, a confirmed positive, the U.S. government began to build its case on Yellow Rain. And, and then, you know, and so then from that, right, you know, you have, you have the refugees still continuing to report and, and discuss these illnesses. And then you have, you have the government continuing to conduct its investigation too, um, knowing, again, the government knowing that 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 they kind of want to know who's doing this, right? They want to get to the bottom of this because they want to know who's the perpetrator, so they can they can prepare themselves too if they're being threatened. Um, and so, so, so that's that's kind of the evidence that the that the government comes out with. But again, that side is sort of like in in adversary to this B feces theory, right? You know, because the two were kind of ad against each other. Right. You know, the people who came up with the bee feces theory were really interested in wanting to make sure that you, you know, that, that you could, that the world would deescalate in conflict and, and not, not get into greater conflict. And so, so the, what I think what is heartbreaking for me and what's very sad is that, again, in the middle of all of that, you had these refugees who just, who just were not you know, who were dismissed, who were either called liars or who, or who were either being exploited for their story and their, and their, and what they were saying was happening to them. Meanwhile, nobody cared about them. People just cared about their own political agendas. Have you, as you've wrote this book and looked more into the history of Yellow Rain, and because this uh, impacted your, your family, your, your parents, 
what were the feelings that you had and what were the emotions that you felt when you were researching and, and writing this book? You know, I had a lot of feelings of frustration and I had feelings of hopelessness too because I thought, how am I going to tell this story at all? How am I going to tell it in a way that will even make sense to the reader, even as I'm trying to make sense of it myself too? Um, I also had moments where I just was devastated by the stuff that I was reading and just angry at what I was discovering in these documents about how how these Hmong refugees were being described and treated by the officials. Um, and, you know, and, and, and so it was a, a lot of that, you know, but I also, I also went about it too with, with an, a kind of openness to, to see what I would find out and to also know that maybe, maybe this is, maybe my work is not necessarily to solve what happened, but to at least be able to, to, to reinvestigate it to the best of my ability and to bring it to a newer light. And, and maybe that, maybe that's enough for it, you know, and maybe being able to realize the, um, the conflict that was being hashed out between these two political sides and to see that really in the middle of that, you had these refugees who were being exploited and being called liars. Like that's what I think I took away from this more than anything, more than trying to figure out what yellow rain was was the collateral uh, fallout um, that was inflicted on, on the refugees who then had to suffer the politics of this, of this government. Well, Minder, thank you so much for speaking to me. Uh, it's just been great uh, to, to hear about your book and to read it too. And I would encourage people who haven't uh, heard about it or read it yet to buy it. Thanks so much for having me. Loved talking to you. News Nerds is produced and hosted by me. We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com where you can listen to hours of past content, subscribe to our newsletter, and contact us. Or listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at kgvm.org or 95.9 FM on your radio. Consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org slash support dash KGVM.